podcast. I've got a very special guest with me today, uh, Graham Speak, who is the Director of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. And so I'm, I'm really excited. I have uh, long known Graham and we worked together previously and Waterfall is one of our, our best supporters of the association. So it's just great to bring that all together today. Uh, and I know Graham's got uh, quite a story. So um, comes to this from uh, a long, long history in engineering. Uh, he is an engineer and he did start out in control systems very early on. Uh, he is also, though, a well-rounded, interesting person. He is a father. He's a husband. He's a grandfather. He's a music lover, uh, a world traveler, and recently become also an RV uh, traveler, which I hope to do as well sometime. Uh, he's a photographer and a Raspberry Pi enthusiast. Welcome to the show, Graham Speak. Thank you, Derek. And yes, we, as, you, as you said, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Oh, in different guises as well, which we'll come along to it later. Yep, yep, that's absolutely right. Let's dig into it. So uh, I always sort of ask some similar questions in in trying to get your story. Um, if you have, if you're new to the podcast, uh, you know the goal of these initial sessions are to sort of get veterans of this space to share their personal journey and the decisions they made that led to where they are today. And uh, when the intersection of control systems and cybersecurity sort of came together for them. And it's all different. There are some common shares, there's some things, uh, some themes that arise quite often, but everybody's journey has been different and there's lots of opportunity and things that people could day, today could choose to maybe emulate. So maybe some things you did or things you wish you hadn't done that people could take into sort of their own decision-making about their own career journey. So I always like to start, you know, uh, superheroes of today have to include cybersecurity people. And every superhero has a backstory. So, what? Uh, where do you come from? I know you, there's something about your voice. It's not Texas. <laughs> it's very, very East Texas. No, I'm, I'm, my accent is sort of all over the place. I was born in Wales and lived there for 20 odd years. And then when I first started work, I moved to London and around the London area. But I've been in America now 20 years, which is a long time. And I still haven't lost the accent. Although I was in the UK last week and my mother went, Hmm, your accent's a bit not Welsh anymore. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's it's been a, a strange journey and working in different countries. So uh, uh, even British people can't actually place where I was born. <laughs> <laughs> well, you spend enough time in enough places. Uh, yeah, you're sort of a, a mashup of all those. A question I like to ask Graham early on, just to set the stage, it's kind of curious what people their first experience in doing any kind of work. Uh, and it really, you know, this can be very early prior to prior to graduating schooling. You know, what kind of things did you start doing? Well, before I went to college, I did a lot of work for my uncle doing, we were doing electrical refurbishments of steel plants. And that's probably where I got into industrial. And, you know, we were rewiring the crane and then making sure it worked um, and putting in control systems for, for the, steel work so it's like yeah i was doing the grunt work you know i was 16 17 18 coming home filthy dirty but it was great it was like oh yeah this is interesting so i then that really focused me to do electrical electronic engineering at college and i did that and passed and it was sort of then i moved into like people like ford motor company trying to get into working with electronics ele electricity and in industrial setting um, and that really was my probably my first real job in the industrial world was two years working for fords 
looking at their production lines and wiring up PLCs and bringing that information back to not PCs, but a mini computer, because that was the, the most powerful thing that we could use. And like huge things that probably mobile phones now will probably got more power than, than they did. First of all, I'm going to have to update my side spreadsheet here. I'm keeping track of who was first and uh, in working on this problem. And, and the fact you've driven the stake now that you were, you know, touching industrial systems age 16. I'm going to have to move you. Uh, you might be, you know, you might be, you might be beating out some people who think they were first. So it was interesting. I mean, in those days, it was like I didn't realize like PLCs were fairly new, and they were. It was like, no, oh, they must always have been here. You don't really think about that when you're doing it. It was a very early exposure, and it sort of you do sort of focus then on that in your life. And it was like, this is interesting. You can get your hands dirty, literally, because we were in a production line, but still doing that computerized and keeping working with software and the abstract. So you you've got a bit of both there of hands on and brain on. Yeah, and if I understand your sort of history, then you've got about a decade at that point where it is really about all these systems and programming and engineering and not yet security. And that intersects and sort of then stays present forever in the somewhere in the 80s. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. It was probably 16 years of different industrial and safety systems before I really got into security. And, in those early days, we didn't even think about security. I'll be quite honest, you know, we, we didn't even, when we were in the um, working for boards, you know, we hooked everything up and it was hooked up quite often to in any business network or anything. It, and nobody worried. It was like, yeah, well, we want that information and you just did it. And, and I don't think, you know, it was very early computing. So, you know, there weren't the viruses and everything else and the hacking, but those early days no it's just what you need to make it production work and work in a really cost-effective manner i think this is is important uh you know because people ask where do the cybersecurity experts for ot or ics come from they come from different backgrounds it seems to be that if i had to say what's the biggest group of the pioneers you know the people who have been working on this problem the longest they tended to come from working with the industrial equipment first and then cybersecurity gets added later and and so i think you know if we've got listeners who are who are engineers that's still a path right they may be a chemical engineer or mechanical or processing you know something and looking for more wanting to do more maybe wanting to change their career path and so adding cybersecurity to to their career path is that still an option like it was i mean clearly it was a green 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 field there's still some green field right i mean oh, yeah. I think there is. And certainly, you know, when I've been with like Accenture other company, we we never look for a cybersecurity person. We try to look for an engineer who perhaps had cybersecurity or who we thought could train. Because I think you need that engineering background. If you've seen a production line or an oil refinery or anything else, you can realize what could go wrong and why you need to protect it, rather than trying to teach a computer whiz. Oh, but if you do this one, you're going to stop the production line. And it'll be, well, so what? But yeah, without seeing, oh, hang on, if this production line stops, you might not only lose production, but the machine might break. And then you've got a knock-on effect with that. So 
having that engineering bent is really, really good. And so, yeah, I think don't limit yourself of, I want to go to cyber security, so do cyber security at college. Think about what you're really interested in and perhaps incorporate it even as a minor with something else in an engineering background. So you have some of those engineering fundamentals and you add cybersecurity to it. If you're already an engineer, let's say we get this question uh, in chat in a lot of our live sessions. Somebody says, you know, how do I how do I break in or how do I start? You know, it's the same sort of phraseology around around entry. And so if it, what would you recommend to someone who is an early, you know, an engineer and they've still got a lot of path ahead of them? What what do they do first? Because that's the question. What, what step do I take first to start adding cybersecurity and grafting that onto their their professional path? Yeah, and I think it, it might depend on the kind of company they work for. You know, if they're in a large, you know, 100,000, 10,000 man company, you know, can they find somebody who's doing that in the in the company that they can just, you know, use as a mentor, use, the, you know, talking to? Um, you know, if it's a smaller company and if they haven't got that or if they can't find people, you know, can you go on and get information from, you know, people like what you're doing with these podcasts? because understanding where cybersecurity is, you might realize it's not, you know, there are some things that are difficult and you've got to train for, but there's a lot of it is common sense and understanding that one and trying to find suitable pathways for specific training that is suitable for you and not all training is suitable for everybody and for the part time of business they're in. But there, I think there's enough people out there who will help people. People have reached out to me in the past of students, and yeah, I've tried to give them some advice of, have you looked at this? Have you done, read this book? Have you done this training course? And there's there's a number of free courses. You don't have to spend money. You know, a lot of the stuff from US government, INL, you know, it's free training, but it's good basics to understand what the problem is and what you need to do where you need to improve you know if you can understand some of that you go okay i can perhaps move a bit further into that realm um, and i think it depends on whether you're a, a real engineer and you don't know tcpip and computing well or do you have you got that knowledge as well and that's where you can learn what bits am i missing so to try to find those courses and there's so many on the web from various people that are free or low cost that you you can just expand your information sources and then try to find something within your company or you know or perhaps another company outside to hone those skills a bit more yeah you've touched on a couple things and the training uh it comes in all flavors and sizes and, and and people don't need to think in terms of only large comprehensive expensive courses if your company can afford that great but there's all the other it's a breadcrumb trail right um, our, even our, our our sessions, they're free to the world and they're very educational. And we have an on-demand library for our members of, I don't know how many now, going back years of recordings of people like you giving, you know, doing the sessions and, and breaking down some facet of the problem. And so, yeah, consuming some of that as a as a basic orientation uh, to begin one's journey. And then you can you can go in lots of educational directions. You also mentioned mentioned mentorship. And so let's talk about that. That's a theme that does come up in these sessions a lot. What's been your experience, both being a mentor or being a mentee or both? Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, when I first started in, in cybersecurity, you know, way 
in the 90s, yeah, there was somebody else in, in the company I was working for at that time, had a bit more experience, only because he was doing it in his spare time. It wasn't part of our company. But yeah, learning from him of how do you set up a Linux firewall? And like, I knew Linux, I never IP chains and I was like, what is all this? And, but it was for him teaching me, and then I could teach that one to some of the, the other people in, in, in my unit to say, oh, look, this is what we can do with a Linux and how to make it into a firewall. Um, in other places as well, where I, you, know, you, you find somebody in your company who knows either a bit more than you or a different skill set than you've got and try to be a mentor to him and him to be a mentor to you so you can both learn off each other. So it might be somebody's very good at security and you learn a bit more, or perhaps they're good at more engineering stuff and you don't know that part of the engineering, and, but you teach him some security. And there are people around, and quite often you might have in your company a chat room or a bulletin board or something. There's so many different ways. And, just announce that yes, you want to learn X. Is anybody willing to help me? Or just ask your boss, your people you meet in the cafeteria, anything just to find the people who might be able to help you or you can help them. Yeah, I love uh, the, your, the particular kind of thing you talk about, a mentorship exchange or an exchange of expertise. That yes. hasn't come up before, but it's interesting. Like, hey, we could swap, whether that's formal or informally sort of mentioned but the concept is sound right you know something i don't know and i know something you don't know you know let's have lunch could really turn out to be something very uh you know very interesting and you know it's not gonna be a perfect hit but there's people outside your company that would probably be receptive to that as well i find the community to be to be incredibly open to to well articulated requests you know hey can you be a formal mentor and meet with me once a month might not be the first overture to make to someone but hey, could we do lunch or coffee um, and talk about the security of this particular, um, you know, real-time operating system? Uh, you, you're going to get, by and large, you're going to probably get a pretty good response to that in a lot of places. You will, yeah. I mean, if people, if somebody writes to me, has taken the time to find, you know, either my LinkedIn profile or my email address or anything, um, or Metro Conference, and just willing to write to me and say. I want to do this, but what do I do? Yeah. I feel like I have to respond and, yeah. and help them because they've taken the time and they really need some help. It might not be, it might be a short email or it might be an ongoing exchange. But if they're interested enough, we should take the time as sort of older people in the industry to help them out because we want the younger people to come through this system and for them to become mentors in the future, because yeah. we want this to continue over multiple years. So when we're in our old age and dotage, you know, we'll be protected by the younger people. For me, and that's not far off. <laughs> it's a great, it's mentorship as an insurance plan. Yes. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, I love it. Uh, but you know what, society, you know, you're right. It's a foundation to to build a more stable uh, stable yeah. future. And we know yeah. we have a shortage of people who, who are qualified. And uh, this is an aspect of that, right, of, of cultivating and developing and drawing more people in. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about You've got to use different people. I think if somebody has got 
absolutely no experience in it, but it's shown an interest, it's still worth helping them along because it's really not what, you know, whether you've got a history major or an engineering major, you might still have the capability and the interest to go into this business and help anybody. And if you give them enough information, they'll either go, oh, no, it's really not for me or, wow, this is my thing that I should have done in college, but I didn't do it. That was a mistake. But let me learn from it now. Yeah. So let's go back to your sort of career path. You um, uh, you're in the engineering um, roles and then security comes in. Do you remember what that first intersection was where it's like, wow, I'm working on industrial you know, equipments and PLCs and things and suddenly security, you know, when it first intersects and does that equal also you becoming 100% focused on cybersecurity or no, it's still just part of what I do. What, what is that transition? Yeah, I think, you know, to in terms of security, it was much later on in my career. It was probably mid nineties when I did that, you know, but prior to that one, I had worked in what would be classed as, a, as security. Now I worked on safety systems and designed a safety system, but we just literally, that was, I had three years experience of coding and joined a company where, you know, I doubled the software team. So, you yes. know, a small company, and we wrote a new program, a new operating system to, it was an electronic um, safety system, fire and gas system. It shut down a, or was meant to shut down an oil rig if there was a problem. But we never discussed security. Though it, nowadays, you would say that should be a high security system. But we were linking that one to everything and not worrying about it. It was only until, like I say, the mid-90s when I was working for another company. I was doing IT. So it was really IT, but in the industrial sense, mostly, that we wanted to have an internet connection for our business. And I did this Linux firewall to protect the company from the internet. And that's what got me in, in, into IT security. And I did, I did banking security for two and a half years um, and websites um, before I moved back into uh, sort of the industrial security. So it was a bit of IT then into security and then, and I think it was really after 9-11, we got into OT security. Prior to then, it probably wasn't thought about that much. Yeah, I, I'm curious, a couple of things come to mind when you're talking about that. I wonder if that a juxtaposition of the of the industrial equipment and then doing some web facing you know going to some traditional IT stuff and then the intersection of stuff and connecting to those systems we know that a lot of vulnerability has been piercing what used to have no connections and from the corporate networks is common or potentially from the outside world which is not great but we know it we know it occurs did that give you some perspective when you start you know what, what by the time you get to BP are you focused is that OT cybersecurity focused? No, I, I joined BP and I was doing websites so, you know, like you, we'll come on to one of my joint next events. But, you know, with BP, my, my interview was in L.A. And I was I was working with I was a consultant and I was putting websites in for them and right. having lunch, uh, dinner with them. And they went, do you want to come and join us? And so I did websites for about and that was in like um, May of 2001. So come, come 9-11. 
it was suddenly, oh my God, we've got industrial plants. And at that point it was like, oh, hang on, you know some industrial stuff, don't you? And that's sort of how it started. And it was, yeah. I was helping them out. We were then, oh my God, all our plants are connected directly. Yeah. So and everybody was not to out a brand. Everybody was. That's the way it was. Yeah, I mean nobody thought about it. Um, yeah. So that's really. And then from there, I would probably ninety percent of my work or more was always then OT from that point on. That was the pivot point. And uh, it's interesting. No one has mentioned it before, but a, a moment, a, a, a catalyst was nine eleven for you and for com companies. I mean, I, I know that, but I don't know that anybody shared specifically that that was a pivot point in their career. So everything had been leading up to you having that specialty knowledge in two areas, and yep. then you were called upon to, to fuse those, you know, to, to have a career path from then on that called on that, right? Yeah, and really before 9-11, there probably wasn't an OT security role. You probably couldn't have got one. There probably was some people, but it was, it probably literally was a handful around the world. Everybody was IT and perhaps dabbled and looked at it, but not really did anything. So yeah, that was a big pivot point, and you know, going from you could walk into a plant to oh, hang on, the um, I was in the UK, the, you know, the SAS are going to come in and do a security audit, and they, they literally all were called Mr. Jones or Mr. Smith. Seriously, it was like, okay, <laughs> we've got six people. Are you a Jones or are you a Smith? <laughs> You looked at them and went, I'm not going to argue with them because they knew what they were doing. Um, they were obviously they were doing physical audits, but it, yeah. it was a turning point. It was it was very different from, you know, from one month to the next of everything's good. And then, oh, could anything happen? And yeah. we didn't know. So and then things happened very quickly from then going from nothing to well, certainly BP getting firewalls in, looking at all your connections, uh, making sure everything's monitored, doing a management IT firewall um, audits and managed services. So it changed very, very quickly and everybody had to learn. And even talking to suppliers, suppliers didn't know what industrial communications were. So you're trying to teach those how to do it at the same time. Yeah. So it, it was complicated. And do you think, you know, let's think about then and now. Is it more complicated or less complicated now? Sort of an interesting question. It's probably less complicated because I think people know about it. I mean, back then, if you talked about Modbus or Profibus or anything else, suppliers went, yes, we can monitor that. And you could see them and try to look them up on the Internet. <laughs> what, what was it? But I think, you know, now they know. And you'll talk to these people and you'll talk to waterfall you'll talk to nozomi you'll talk to all these other people they know what is out there that you they understand industrial world and industrial language and therefore they you can have an intelligent conversation very early on whereas i can remember talking to it was Symantec at that time and you know but not singling them out they didn't know anything about industrial but they knew firewalls and it was more of well, we can learn this, and, and they did, but you had to discuss with them, well, hang on, this should never get out the firewall because it's a control protocol. If that hits your firewall, you know, we want an alarm here because it's a problem. Whereas nowadays, I think they would understand that from, from the get-go. 
So the only thing that I'm going to challenge you back, I, I understood your answer, and I'm inclined to agree with you. How many attack surfaces were there then, and how many are there now? There were probably more so then. And I think we were all learning. So even, even when I was in other companies, you know, there were things that we might have let through a firewall and thinking that's okay, but not realizing that was a way that things could be attacked. And I can remember some of the early viruses, you know, they were looking on you know, SQL Server and things. We may have had, you know, SQL going back and forth through a firewall without thinking, well, hang on, you could piggyback on that port if you didn't check it and just allowed it through. We're going to get that virus through as well. And, it, and I think, well, I know that happened on it in a number of occasions. Yeah. So I think there were more things there. And I think we've locked down what we can do now, what's enough through our firewall. But yes, there's still a lot of attack vectors now that people can use. You just got to be very careful and know what you've got to look at everything and try to understand what is an attack vector and how do you mitigate it or get rid of it? Yeah, you um, you mentioned um, Modbus and DMP3. I mean, these sound exotic. You know, are those protocols? Are there just a couple of those? How many? What, what are those? What are you talking about? Yeah, and, and that's the problem. It's like even even when I was starting, okay, I knew things like Modbus because that's what I dealt with back in my four days in the eighties. But some of the other ones, it was like I haven't a clue. Should this be around? Should this be on our network? Um, what are, what are, what are you talking about right there? For our listeners, you might not know those acronyms, what are those? Okay, so basically they are um, protocols that can be used between a two devices. So usually say Modbus, there will be a Modbus server and a Modbus device. So TCPIP is not involved in what you're describing there at all? Usually, well, they can, you can have serial, but most of these are on IP. So with Modbus, you'll have a, if you go across a TCP IP network, it will send the packets, you could look at those, and basically the server will tell the end device, which is often say a PLC, turn on output three, and it will turn on output three. So each one needs to know what the other one is, but once they do, they can, you're basically controlling it. So it's, it's like, if you said to Alexa, you know, turn on my lights, that is Alexa's turning something on. Modbus is very similar. It's telling a, the end device, turn on that lamp, and it turns on the lamp. Now, um, and, and, might, and might Alexa or, or Siri be using a different protocol, Z-Wave or Zigbee, essentially yeah. a different protocol, but it's, so it's a communication protocol, proprietary communication protocol. Are we talking there's two or three or four of these? How many are there? <laughs> There's probably hundreds. I mean, some of them are very specific, and quite often that you might get a, a protocol is for an industry. So, like in your car, you know, you may have it might be protocols used in your car would be different to what is used in a manufacturing plant to perhaps is what's used in a refinery or a, a, a utilities electric generation. There are multiple of these, and then you can also get modified ones because somebody might change it or not implement the whole protocols so if you start looking at them on across the internet not the internet, on the on your network you might see a whole load of things and go well, i think it's this but 
wondering where you know some parts of it are perhaps not fully utilized so if, if someone has an it centric background this is an area to go discover right to look at these industrial protocols you know that's yeah. that that's another area and you have to sort of have a an understanding of that for all this to come together right yeah yeah and you can obviously because it's across the tcp ip network you can use the standard tools they may use in their it world to look at protocols analyze the protocols and look at them and then see all all of that code and things like modbus most of these ip network monitoring tools understand modbus so they can break that down and see what's going on I know we sort of said, I think you may have said earlier on, I like Raspberry Pis. Quite often you can get some of those, a lot of those industrial protocols on a Raspberry Pi. Very cheaply, you could get, you know, three, four Raspberry Pis networked together. You could then look at that communications among the Raspberry Pis, and you've got a piece of hardware where you can switch lights on and off, but also see how they're doing that. And what's that communication path? And so that's again another um, way to make a cheap, useful industrial lab. I keep meaning to write up how you could do some of this, but never managed to do it. <laughs> yeah, that's something like another good CC session we should do just just on that. So then you end up uh, at Yokogawa in a very interesting role. So tell me about you know how that comes about and how different that is than maybe, you know, or not, than what you were doing at BP. Yeah, I mean, at, at BP, I, by that time, I was working a lot with downstream, and we, at downstream, were looking for a new supplier for their industrial control system. I was helping out with on the security side, looking at Yokogawa and a few others. Um, are these suppliers good enough you know, do they have the functionality, but I was obviously, are they secure enough to put into a BP plant? So that's how I got into knowing Yokogawa. I think I sort of remember flying in from Malaysia, because I was in Malaysia doing something, into Tokyo, went into their plant, and then, we, then tried the normal few little very simple hacks, and, you know, Back in 2005, when this first started, some of the things may not have survived very well and crashed. But it was great to see them very quickly, like overnight, making changes and making them secure. And it got me interested in, well, although I'm putting stuff in that was hopefully secure, we really should be looking at the supplier of the equipment and making sure they were really secure and, and designing upfront secure equipment. I've been also been working with ISA on them on what was ISA 99 to so looking at their standards. So that's how with those two together, it was like um, I found out Yokogawa were looking for a sort of a global security leader. So that's how I applied to them and got into Yokogawa. And it was more of I want to do something else, try to make things more secure at the earliest stage rather than just in one company at the at the real sort of the end stage. And yeah, it was great looking at them with not much security in there at that time because everybody was still learning. 
and building, you know, start with a, a security program for them and building security in to all of their devices that they were designing for the industrial market. And let's let's use that as a segue. So not uh, not saying Yokogawa, and that's been some, some years since you've been there. If you had to give a report card then and now to the industry, because I know you knew some of your peers at other big manufacturers, this idea of securing stuff at the beginning of the life cycle, that the you know secure by design was not something any anybody was working with. Um, yep. where, what's the report card you know 20 years ago and the report card now for for manufacturers? I think 20 years ago, it probably was. Yeah. I don't think it was deliberately they would not put the security in. Right. But the end users weren't asking for security. If, yep. if a VP, uh, Exxon, anybody is not asking for security and don't care about security, I wouldn't say they didn't care, but it wasn't any part of their buying process. You, you're not going to spend time and money designing it in when you didn't at that time when you could make things more difficult. Oh, hang on, you've got to patch your system once a month, or we're not going to uh, make it good. Well, hang on, people weren't going to do it. Um, so I think, you know, yeah, 9 11 changed it, so people did want then security. So I think now basic security um, of designing security in having a security program, doing testing. I think most of the bigger companies, at least in DCSs, that's what they're doing. It's not perfect, but you know, they'll certainly have antivirus and they'll let you to add in antivirus. Whereas 20 years ago, they said, yeah, of course you can. Oh, but all of these directories, you're gonna have to uh, not scan because it will break our system. It's not like that now. So it's definitely an improvement. And I think some of it might be more now the end user may not want to put some of these in rather than, you know, a Yokogawa or a, anybody else will say, yep, you can do patching every month. But the end user will perhaps go, I'll do it once every three months because it's too difficult. But yeah, it's, it's definitely, I think there's, you certainly got always got the older equipment as well. They're probably still having older equipment, which they probably haven't upgraded. You know, PLCs with perhaps faults in them. You know, but nobody's going to try patching those devices. It's too difficult. So yeah, it's definitely improved a hell of a lot. And they're probably end users are probably good to very good now. You you mentioned something else. I think if we've got our colleagues coming from an IT backgrounds. Who think in terms of tech refresh rates of in, in a single digit years, and you just put one of the secrets of this space out there, you know, not 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 closely held secret. It's yep. got 20 years of technology or more in it, and so that's one of its constraints. It, it's yep. it's not the same playing field uh, as as tech that refreshes in in a three or four year cycle, whatever the traditional IT tech refresh is. No, and I don't think you, when you actually look at some of the equipment that's put, you can't make it. A, a quick refresh you know you may have say pharmaceuticals you know you can't refresh that equipment because then you've got to go through a recertification to make sure that the medicines being produced is still in spec i mean you know it's probably not a huge task but it's still a task you're going to do so you'll go mm, 
uh, let's do the minimum amount and put in protections around the outside to keep to mitigate you not putting on those updates or upgrades. Um, so it, it's not as easy as just you know you'll roll out an IT um, update to you know say you know ten thousand laptops. Oh, twenty broke. So what? Doesn't matter. We'll just give them a new one. Yeah, yeah. You can't do that with. Hang on, we've updated a thousand PLCs. 10 broke but we'll replace them doesn't matter no it's you've broken something then yeah so around i think it's during this time period maybe uh 2011 or 12 or something that somebody reached out to you to be part of a of a certification in this space yeah what what can you tell me about that this is i think when we probably first cross paths yeah not if that's the right word but yeah you know um I was in Yokogawa and I was doing ISA. SANS were looking for to put a new certification, well, a new training course stroke certification. And I know you were involved in that. And you reached out to see would I be involved in the GX certification? And yeah, um, it's one of those that, although it took a long time, Yokogawa were very keen to. And like I think everybody else who worked on that certification, the, their companies wanted all of us to sit down and good, get a good certification together because the industry needed it. Um, I think at that time we were all looking to recruit cyber professionals who understood the industrial world, and there was nothing out there. It was it was barren. And you couldn't even say, oh, I've been on a training course, even without certification, because there wasn't even a training course, really. I mean, INL had a little bit, but really very, very limited. So, yeah, you know, worked with the people there. We, I mean, you had, you know, a group of people doing the training course, and that ended up being the ICS 410, you know, which is, I know, still going, but yet, it, it, at that time, it was a very good training course. It was, it showed the basics of IT and OT and where they interacted and helped people who were IT people understand the protocols, understand that they could look at how the protocols worked, how things work and what the interactions are. And, and I think that was, it was very good. But I think the good thing was OT people and IT people sat in the same course and discuss things and but you can't do that because it'll break my machine and oh yeah. but yeah we want to do this on the IT side and, but they start to understand each other a bit more and I think that that you know forgetting about what they learned on the course I think that was such a great improvement in the industry where IT and OT people were in the same room and openly discussing different aspects of the same thing and then we had the GIAC, and so they had the, the, the certification, the GICSP, and I think that really was, you know, the start of a good certification because at least if you were an employer, you could look and go, hang on, they may not have any practical experience, but at least they have got some knowledge of the industrial world and industrial security because they've got a GICSP. It helped them go, okay, you you may not be the best, but you've got this this bar, and you've met this bar. And I think it's 
probably very similar to in the IT world. If you're in IT security, you really should have a CISSP. It doesn't mean that you're good. It doesn't mean you perhaps can implement everything in that, but at least you've got the brain power and the knowledge that you that, that certification gives you. And I think that's that's the one good thing that GICSP actually gave the world. That we could actually use that one and use it as a benchmark of at least everybody have this. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a that was a really special time and, and a great brain trust to come together and say, how do we do this? And there was confusion in the in the in the space uh, at first. And, and I like the analogy. And I, I think it might have been Mike Asante, my, my partner at the time, uh, the late Mike Asante, who was a, definitely a pioneer in this area. Uh, he, he likened it uh, to it doesn't say you're a brain surgeon. It just says you could be safe to stand in the OR. Uh, you know, you know, to glove up and, you know, some safety protocols and, you know, some basics. And so you're safe to be in the room, um, but yeah. but uh, and so I think it's uh, you know with that pr pr provision, uh, you know it made sense, right, to be able to. There were employers that said, I don't know these people that want to come in and do stuff in our space. I don't know if they know at all what they're doing. This could at least be a benchmark. And like you said, it doesn't say these were masters uh, or, or experts. Some of you who helped create it were in that in that sort of area of expertise. But it was about how do we get a much much more a broad base of people to be able to at least certify that they could take us, you know, that they were safe to operate. And that they had the beginnings of that understanding, those fundamental understanding, safety, reliability, resiliency. They even knew what those things were, which they might not have otherwise. Yeah, and I think even for them, just you would be comfortable they could sit in a room in a meeting and not say something stupid like, well, what's Modbus? Or what yeah. is well, a safety system? What do you need that for? You know, yeah. it takes away the stupid questions where, if you alienate a group of people, say the engineers or the operators, it's hard to get that confidence back. So at least you could bring them to a meeting and they understood it. And yeah, and then they can learn. I, I think you just, I think, you know, I'm always looking to mine out these golden nuggets from these sessions. And I think you just uncovered one of them, which is learn the basic working vocabulary, whether you get a certification or not, nothing keeps you from learning these things. Learn the basic working vocabulary because it's it, it is about teams working together. There's a lot of dysfunction still in the industry of, of distrust based on distrust. And a quick way to begin the bridge building is learn the learn the vocabulary and and, and the context. And if you can do that, then whatever conversations you're going to have are certainly going to be start out better. Yeah, and and learn the tech the terminology for your industry because oil and gas will be different to nuclear. Uh, which will be different to the water. So, yeah. yeah, it don't just go in there and go. Well, we call it this. And, no, it doesn't matter what you call these things. And you know, we had process control networks or you know OT networks. We can go on probably eight, ten words meaning the same thing, but each industry calls them something different. So that's really what we need to uh, understand as well. And and that's what the the four ten gave us. It quite often did give you different words in the terms of different industries and how they all interact. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've been, you know, at uh, some small companies like British, British Petroleum and Yokogawa. Did you ever think about going and doing a startup? No, I never thought about that, but someone got Wait, me drunk in a bar. No, no yeah, I, I know we had eaten, I think we were in Vegas, weren't we, Derek? Quite possible. Um, yeah, and I was doing, I think I was, I think I had a, a four I think I might be doing a, a sands course or something. And yeah. then we met for lunch, lunch or dinner and you went, huh, would you mind 
come to a startup and i think i quite surprised you by saying yeah why not you did <laughs> and it was like but i think at that time in my career it was like yeah i I done a lot with yokogawa i've never done a startup and even though i perhaps had thought of at various times in my career doing consultancy on my own okay this was probably the closest thing um and you know but having mike asante on board i know just mentioned him i mean the opportunity to work for mike who was as you said he was a pioneer a leader i think we all miss him he was great and to be able to work for mike that was such an honor and i know you worked with him a few times but he's a wonderful wonderful person yeah we i my journey in cybersecurity. we were both full-time full-time navy officers when we started cooking up our first company together you know in eon ago it seems and he he definitely dragged me into cybersecurity back in the mid 90s uh and then and then 10 years or 12 years later into control system side of things because he was he had already forged a path in that in that direction and uh you know very early you know i think you know sort of uh, america electric power after we sold uh LodgeKeep, our first company together he ended up shortly thereafter and 9-11 was a big catalyst for him he he uh was working with the fbi on critical infrastructure and ended up in america electric power and I remember those early years. We still lived in the same town, and he was like, "Wow, there's this whole other side of things." Um, and uh, I think he never left the the OT ICS side of things from from that moment forward. That that became his his area of focus. Yeah, and, and I think you know we certainly were in that in that company. We were pioneers there. Yeah, Next Defense was definitely. Uh, you know, I I share your uh, sort of your memory of that being early. We acquired technology from the Idaho National Laboratory, so that was even early research. And you go back, you know, peel back the onion layer, and selling anomaly detection or or, or monitoring uh, in industrial network. Most end use cases, that was a brand new conversation at the time. It was highly educational, which from for for all startups, it's a scary proposition. It's generally dangerous. The more education you have to do, the more people don't have budgets for it and awareness of how to use it and how to how to mm -hmm. operationalize it. Uh, the riskier it is and so um i think you know next defense was uh was a bit too early and uh ultimately it's uh you know it's it's so the successor companies including the company that bought it have all made that market and now there's a number of key companies that are delivering on on network monitoring and our survey our annual survey uh, at CSA has shown network monitoring is absolutely the most mature companies are saying is no question we're doing it um, yeah. And I think, you know, what, what Next Defense did, the the visualization of a OT network was just, people didn't have that before. There was no way they could do it. So it was suddenly, I can see all my devices. And, oh, hang on, that's a PLC. I, you know, so, you know, the IT people might not have understood it, but that again brought them back into the OT world because they went, you've given me this network map, what does all this lot mean? So it, it didn't force together the IT and the OT people. And yeah, it was very good technology. Um, yeah, bought, bought out in the end. But yeah, it's definitely a good learning experience for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And it was an interesting uh, brain trust with, uh, you know, with, with Mike and Doug and you. Yeah. I mean, it just some some of the you know super knowledgeable people coming together to 
to work uh, to work on that problem. And today, it, it is interesting to see how the tool set has matured. You know, the options for tools that are appropriate to running these environments. I think we were. I remember very early on, we had opposition. I think anybody, any of the early companies around, is this safe to run, you know, in the environment? That whole notion that traditional IT or cyber tools could break, a, you know, a network as we had to sort of gain confidence and pilots and all that stuff. So it's, it is exciting. I think it's 10, 12 years later from where, you know, I suppose we thought in a five-year period, there'd be some maturity. And it seems like now that maturity is starting to be the case. And I think it is. I think there are people all willing to have things like that in their network and it's not a oh gosh could it break the system it's more of well let's just make sure it's secure and only the people who should see it can see it yeah. rather than oh it's going to break the system so yeah it's definitely good and um, yeah they're, they're really good tools now so you went on to do some more uh you know again you stayed in the space and and you went to uh, Burkana, and that was oil and gas, electric utility focused. And now you are, and you did a, a stint in Accenture and Red Dragon, and your LinkedIn thing. And I know you—you you said sort of failing at retiring. Uh, you had a long career, and you're you're back recently engaged. Uh, you've had a relationship and done work with uh, uh, Waterfall Security Solutions for a long time, but you're back recently engaged in a in a full time role there. Yep. So. Back in July, August, September of last year, my wife had a couple of accidents, fell over and had some replacements in her arm. And it was, so I took some time off and then went, really, I should retire. And we've got an RV, we were going to travel the country. I didn't even tell Accenture to start with because it was like, I'm probably going to do it. But, you know, just we were still definitely trying to work out, is this really the thing to do? So about four or five people in the world knew I was good, more than likely to retire. And then Andrew Ginter, who's, you, you know, like messaged me out of the blue, went, hey, I, I hear you maybe um, have some free time. It's like, I don't know how they found out, because I literally didn't tell that many people. So it's like, okay, might be able to do. So he convinced me to work a couple of days a week. And it was going to be a part-time role and then still working. So that lasted about, well, about a month before he convinced, convinced me now that I'm doing a, a five-day role. But I've known Waterfall for years. And I think most other companies would have said, nope, not interested. But I knew Waterfall, it was probably 2008, if not before. And I think it's before they really made a lot of sales in the US. And I saw them at a conference. I, I spoke to Leo, and it was like, this is really good technology. Well, I knew I was still at BP. It was like, mm, perhaps can't use it in BP, but it was like, this is really good. This is what we need because it does. It's a one-way security gateway. You definitely can't get through it. So I have followed them since 2007, eight. And then when Andrew called, it was like, oh, I really like this company. <laughs> I couldn't say no to working for them because I, I was just a fan of their, their technology. Um, it was probably a bit like when you asked. It was like, it was one of those things you couldn't say no to um, for different reasons, but it was like, I've got to say yes. And I've enjoyed, you know, the month or two before he convinced me to go full time. 
it was I was having a good time. It was like, oh yes, I'm I can touch these devices now. I can write about them. And it was the natural extension now to to go into full time. Uh, but yeah, I think it's like unlike what we were doing with Next Defense, this is proven technology. Yeah. And I think it's where we have to go as an industry. It's like, you know, you look at some of the a lot of the attacks go through the IT network to the OT network, or we're putting OT servers on the IT network. You know, they might not be actually operating machinery, but they're perhaps, I don't know, a, a billing system or a, you know, sending recipes down to the IoT network. If those get hacked on the IT network, you've got to shut down your OT network. Has anything gone through? At least you, know, you put a unidirectional gateway in, you are stopping anything going through. At least you know there's nothing bad on the OT network and you can continue to run it. Whereas at the moment we shut everything down when there's an IT problem. So yeah, and I think it's, it's we're gonna start having this conversation of how do we protect the OT network and perhaps even how far out we want that OT boundary. And you know, if you've got, got servers on the IT network, should there be some protection around them to make sure that the OT network never is compromised? And we know a lot of information extraction is needed, and this is an elegant way of saying you can get information out, which a lot of you know system business systems, corporate systems need. And it doesn't it, you know there are other applications where things need to come back, but let's just say there's a bunch of use cases where going out and yep. and those needs get met and and, uh, and and nothing needs to come back on that same channel and, and you can do even even things like you know turbine monitoring which yeah you know all the big companies want to monitor their turbines yes you can put one of these gateways in and have a remote view and they can still see everything but we've passed the data through the gateway they can see the data but they can't change it in the real system so you know even things like that it's, it's really good and yeah, everything else. You can even look at the security side of it. Yeah, you know, we're talking about next defense. You know, there are now a lot more companies out there that do anomaly detection. Yes, you can you can securely put those the IDSs and all that data through a gateway. The IT department can monitor it and manage it, but all they can do is look at that data. You have, the OT people haven't been got to be worried about the IT people doing something. You so you get that interaction again between the two two groups of people, and they can do it securely. Yeah, it makes makes sense. Something came to mind as you're sort of discussing Andrew calling you and and uh, me calling you and you knowing Mike relationships, the power of relationships. So mm -hmm. anybody, but especially at the early in the career, what would you tell them about in the in the grand scheme of things, how small a world it is in this space, and and that the relationships you make. They end up being very powerful later. I mean, you, you know, Andrew wasn't a, a person you'd never heard of calling you to say, "Hey, would you take this position?" You know, seriously. No, and I think, I think with all of us, you know, probably me a bit more than you. It's like I was always in it at the early stage, so you know, I know there's things like S4 coming up again in April. Yep. You know, I went to some of the early S4s, and I think you know, there's like 40 people there. So, but we all knew each other. And you know, we may not have known each other at the start, but we did at the end of that conference. And you know, you you keep those people and you might not see them, you know, once a year, once every three years, 
but you still know them and you can go up and you can bounce questions on them. You can ask them things. You can, hey, you're, you're now in, you know, with LinkedIn, hey, you're now in this company. You know, can we work together? Because it looks like that you're in a similar space to me. And I think you do need to keep those people in your life, even if it's just on LinkedIn or Facebook or what, what have you. And I know, like, I changed my status there on LinkedIn. So another person I know you know, Ian Henderson, the VP, you know, he responded and go, hey, yeah, you know, it's nice you're working for them. And, you know, I knew Ian, well, he came in, what, 2002 to VP. Well, he wasn't VP, but into the security team. Yeah, you know, it's 20 years, but I know I can still ask Ian a question. He can ask me a question. And I think that's the thing. Keep the people that you know and you like and respect. Um, you might not agree with all their views, but it's great. But you can bounce things off them and go, this is what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? And so definitely meet as many people as you can. And if you go to a conference, meet as many people there as you can. Take their business cards, you know, put them on LinkedIn. At least then you can search for them later. And quite often you sort of meet people and they go away and you meet them again. You know, I know like some of the people I, I was working with at us origin and you know before that in Fords have now become, you know, we're on now LinkedIn together. And so it's great that you can talk to these people again. You never know when you might see them in a different guise because people do move around and suddenly, you know, particularly if you end up being a sales organization, hey, I know that person. He was my manager, so and so and yeah, I'll I'll come along with you for the meeting. So you know, and keep and keep people close to you, um, and always try to be nice. Don't upset people if you can help it. Even if you think they're a dork, don't tell them they're a dork to their face, because you never know if they might be useful in the future. Build build and maintain bridges. You never know, right? Who who's <laughs> gonna. Uh... Yes. Who you want to, want, might want to know or be or be glad that you know at at a, at a future date. That's certainly compatible with my 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 life vision and and how things have worked out for me is just keep bridges up. You know, occasionally burn a very a very few bridges. Occasionally, some will have to be burned, but mostly keep them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Occasionally, sometimes you can't stand it, but yeah, you know, try not no. to. Just walk away, have a coffee, <laughs> find a reason to keep them keep them the open lines of communication. Yeah. Well, uh, Graham Speak, this has been awesome. Um, we, we're just wrapping up with Graham Speak, uh, Director of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Longtime career in industrial systems and cybersecurity for control systems, industrial systems. So we get to my favorite part of the show where uh, I ask the Pivot questionnaire. So this is this was borrowed from a French show. So I borrowed it from inside the actor studio, which ran for uh, decades. I think it may still run. The, the longtime host, James Lipton, has passed on. But he always ended his question, ended his show with famous actors and actresses uh, with this questionnaire that he borrowed from a French show before that. So I feel like I'm in good shoes borrowing it. And so if you're ready, we'll end the show with the 10 questions from the Pivot questionnaire. Okay. All right. What is your favorite word? Security. Wow. What is your least favorite word? Insecurity. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I think what turns me on is travel and seeing different things and not so much traveling for places. I don't know, it's probably one word, but meeting people in their 
own environment and learning from them. What turns you off? I think people who, in general, if you go somewhere, try to fit into that culture. Like I, I moved over to America. I fitted in with America. I didn't try America to fit into me. And I think same with a company. Fit in with the culture of that company. Tweak it and try to change it if you want to, but don't radically try to change it unless you know exactly what's going on. What is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? I don't know if I can say it, but I have got a, a couple of unfavorite curse words. And certainly anybody who curses using female genitalia really turns me off. Just because we don't say that in the UK, it really did turn me off. Um, but that's the one curse word that I hate people saying. What sound or noise do you love? The sound that I hate is the vacuum cleaner, which is going on at the moment in the next room because we've got some painters on. So I'm not, I'm not understanding your question. But really, in terms of sounds, it's people who, I know it's not, it's more of a, a thing, but people who keep moaning. And the sound of their voices just moaning all the time and complaining, but without ever giving a positive spin of, or a response of how they could change that. Just complaining does not solve anything. I don't want people going, ah, oh, I don't like this. If we did it this way, it'd be better. So that it's more of an overall sound rather than a particular sound. So that's, you, you've skipped ahead. So what sound or noise do you love? Oh, the sound, one of the sounds I love is my, I've got two grandchildren over here. They're American, but quite often they talk to their, their parents and they try to put on a British accent and go, I want to see Pop-Pop. And I, they recorded that one and I have it on my phone. It's like, music to my ears. I'm the favorite grandparent. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? When I was young, I always wanted to be a pilot. Now, I'm not sure if I could be a pilot now, only because my eyes are gone. Yes, it would be nice to be a pilot or a photographer. What profession would you like to not do? Probably cybersecurity. <laughs> um, I couldn't be a nurse. The thought of going into an OR and seeing people being cut up or, you know, people in pain, even though you've got to be a special kind of person to do that. And I just could not be anything in the nursing, medical, doctor, surgeon category. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Probably, do you want a job? Because hell is trying to kind of cack into us and we need some help. The <laughs> gates keep opening and I didn't do it. <laughs> All right, thank you. Graham Speak, Director of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions. Thank you for sharing your, your story and uh, some of your wisdoms collected on the way and for frankly a, a, an entire a uh, long career dedicated to uh, helping our society be a better and safer place. Thank you, Graham. No, thanks, Derek. And hopefully we can meet up in person before long and we can share a few beers and talk about some of the things we've been through. I would like that. I look forward to that. There's been too little of that in the last few years uh, for, for sure for, for all of us. So, yes, let's plan that. Okay. Take thanks, Derek. Okay, bye.